Hi, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we strive to live life as friends with faith through knowing God, loving others, and making a difference. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast to help you plug in at Quest both in person and online. Now, let's dive into this week's teaching. So, we live in one of the greatest nations in the world, right? Now, you might not fully believe that during the presidential season, but we do. Our nation was founded on a grand social experiment, uh, encapsulated to a certain extent in the Declaration of Independence. I mean, look at these words. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of of happiness. This social experiment that we've been on for the last 240 years as a nation says that the right to life is guaranteed. It says that the right to liberty is guaranteed and we can pursue happiness and kind of good luck hopefully you find it, right? That's kind of what it says. We have the right to pursue it, but for many Americans that pursuit of happiness in particular Seems like a little bit like looking for fairy tale, fairy tale, fairies out there in the, in the land or presidential candidates with great character. Sorry. It's the season. And, uh, you know, so we've been on this journey trying to figure out how to pursue this joy and happiness. And what brings us to that place? And in our pursuit of this social, social experiment, we, we have, we've experimented with different ways of looking at trying to find happiness. And we tend to go into two areas. One we'll just generically call, we look for culture to find it, and others we look for religion. And so let's first talk about this cultural way we look at it. And, and when we talk about this, there's really four different cultural ways we kind of look to try to pursue and find this happiness. We look for new processes. We look for new possessions. We look for new places, and we look for new people, and I got those from somebody else because I never make alliteration like that. We're told if we have the right things in each one of these areas, that we will indeed be happy. So we look to new processes everywhere we look, in books and magazines, TV, even among churches, we find these experts who say if you do these three things, if you do these seven things, then you'll have a healthy, whole, prosperous, happy, joy-filled life. And then there's some like this men's magazine that said, just do these 759 things to live the perfect life. I mean, come on, I I can't even count that high. I mean, how am I going to remember all of that? In fact, if you look at scholars, scholars will tell you the Old Testament has 613 commandments. So men's magazine outdid the Old Testament. Isn't that amazing? It's such a such an awesome thing. I mean, 759 things to the perfect life. Really? Perfect? I skim-read some of these 759 things. And i got to tell you, many of them are tips on how to be selfish and stupid, how to spend money on things you can't afford, and how to break God's commandments and treat women in particular like objects to fulfill your own pleasure. Now, not all... Three-step, seven-step, 20-step, 759-step programs are like that. But many of you have tried various three-step processes to rejuvenate your love life or five steps to, to feeling like you have more energy, and they didn't work, at least not long-term for you. 
So then, then that doesn't work, we move on to new possessions. Every ad we see seems to send a subtle, if not explicit, message. If you have this perfume, if you drive this car, if you wear these kinds of clothes, then you're going to feel good about yourself, right? I mean, some commercials even suggest that all maybe all you need is new undergarments to feel really good about yourself. I mean, maybe it's just really the tags that are the problem of all your unhappiness and grief in life. So if you just solve that, you're good to go. Or... All you need is Jennifer Lawrence's fashion, or you need Tom Brady's beauty rest bread, or bed, or, or LeBron's shoes. And you'll likely never make the kind of money that you can, you know, that these celebrities make, and you'll never likely be able to do all the things they do, but at least you can wear the same clothes and sleep in the same bed, and you'll be happy. And if new clothes don't make you happy, then we usually turn to new tech in today's world, right? We attend our tech and we get signed up for all these push notifications. So we get the latest, hottest celebrity news. And we like that because it makes, feel good, makes us feel good about ourselves. I mean, because we hear it, we read what we see, and we say, well, maybe, maybe my life is so bad after all because this pro athlete just was arrested and forced into rehab and his girlfriend cheated on him and he lost all of his sponsors. It kind of makes me feel better about my life. I mean, it's not so bad after all, right? And if that still doesn't work... Then we need a new place, right? We just need a nicer house with a better view, maybe with a mountain in the backyard or a beach in Hawaii in our backyard, and, because that'll make us happy. And if that doesn't work, then we need new people, right? Happy, ha- we need happy people. We need funny, hilarious people, because we know when we're around funny people, we're also going to be really happy, right? I mean, I love comedy and I love comedians, partially because I can't tell a good joke without their help and trying to copy them, but, but partially because they must have figured out joy and happiness, right? I mean, they're so good at helping other people laugh, they must have it all figured out. But when you look behind the curtain, many comedians are not happy people at all. Robin Williams, Woody Allen, Rodney Dangerfield, George Carlin, Richard Pryor. If you know their life story, psychotherapist Seymour and Fisher examined over 40 professional uh, comedians, and they came to this conclusion. They said that a major motive of comedians is in conjuring up funniness is to prove, prove that they are not bad or repugnant. Or maybe you just married the wrong person and you need a new spouse. All of this to say culture is not the answer to our pursuit of happiness. So when we discover that, many people transition from culture to religion. But that often begins by trying to overlay religion with some little pop psychology. So we look to some of the gurus in our culture like Oprah and Deepak Chopra or Paul Coelho and we mix them in with a little bit, just a dash of Christianity mixed in. And, or, or this one was from seven years ago but came back out in the media about, about a year ago. We look to Paris Hilton's Seven Spiritual Lessons. I gotta tell you, if you're in a place where you gotta say, Paris, please help, you're in a pretty bad place in life. And again, even in our spirituality, see, we return to these seven easy steps to happiness and joy. And often those steps say little about God. In fact, spirituality often has nothing to do with God and the way we in America pursue it and the way we talk about it. Instead, spirituality often has to do with questions like, what makes your heart leap? Right? It's a good question to ask, but that's, that's kind of where we focus our spirituality. Now, I've got to tell you, I know exactly what makes my wife's heart leap. When I come home and she's upstairs and I'm walking up the stairs to her and I say, Wendy, 
I know that at some point she's going to scream bloody murder. Doesn't matter how many times I say, Wendy, I'm home, Wendy, I'm home. How nice I say it. As soon as I walk around the door into the same room she's in, she's going to be shocked and scream bloody. My kids love it. My boys love it. My, my daughter's too nice. She doesn't, she doesn't do anything with that. But my boys like taking advantage of that. Seriously, our heart-leaping question approach to spirituality ends up so often being all about me. It's not about God. It's about what I want, what makes me feel good. And if God becomes involved in what, what the, all that, it's about what God can do for me, not about what God wants me to do in life for him. See, we inevitably face these times in our lives, don't we, where whether it's a short time or a long time, we go through these times where our heart, frankly, isn't leaping. When our spiritual habits of, a, of attending church or being in a small group or praying or studying the Bible or, or, or our giving, it's just tough to do those things. It's not as motivating. It's not as joyful. We struggle with it. And I don't know about you, but they face, we all of us face those times. And I, I hate those times in my life. Don't you? Those are tough times in our life. See, the, the problem is even in trying to find joy in religion, so often we approach that in, 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 a, in a way that's no different than culture approaches trying to find joy and happiness. We equate religion and our pursuit of religion with joy and happiness, the same as culture. We think that religion is all about bringing health and wealth and prosperity in every area of my life. So God will and must, if I have good faith in him, give me these things, right? So we look for new processes in religion. We look for three easy steps to a vital relationship with God. We look to new possessions, how God will make me wealthier. We look to new places, maybe a different church or a different style or a different look. Or we look to new people, a different small group or a different preacher or a new author or a more spiritually supportive spouse. And when we approach our faith like that, we are essentially saying to the culture around us, we as Christians have nothing different to offer you than what you have in your own pursuit of happiness. In this series called Rebel's Guide to Joy, we're going to invite all of us to consider a different way of looking at this process, this pursuit of happiness and joy and how we find it. See, we live in a world where that pursuit isn't going very well. And the number three leading cause of death among teenagers is suicide, according to the CDC. The use of antidepressants and anti-anxiety medicines since 1988 has increased 400%. Now, hear me. I have a professional counseling background. I am an advocate that many people do indeed need and benefit from antidepressants and anti-anxiety medicine. I recommend people to pursue that fairly often in life. So I'm not saying I'm against that, but 400% increase since 1988? Pursuing joy and happiness is not so successful through the focus that our culture has on pursuing it through culture or even the way Americans pursue joy and happiness through religion. It's not working very well in America today. 
See, we hang on to our hopes of someone or something saying things like, when I, when I meet that person, when I fall in love, when I get married, when I have kids, when I finish my college, when I, when I turn 30, when I make my first million, when I get my dream house or my dream job or that dream car that makes me feel really good and sexy when I drive it, then I'll be happy, right? What if that never happens? Not everyone here will grow up to be president one day, although it seems more possible than ever. (laughs) Sorry. Two and a half weeks, we won't have any more jokes like that. Not everyone here will get married and have babies. Not everyone here will become millionaires. Not everyone here will avoid life without any serious physical problems. Not everybody here will have the perfect, long-lasting relationship that makes you feel like I lived happily ever after in that, that fairyland of that we all dream of being a part of in our relationships. And what if I don't get those things that I dream of, that you dream of? What then? Well, we're going to be sad. We're going to be despairing. We're going to be mourning. Because our hope was out there, and it never came to be. Now, don't hear me wrong. Desire is a good thing. God gives us desires. God wants us to have healthy, good relationships. God is the one who created falling in love. And frankly, I think when you fall in love, God does this kind of happy dance jig around heaven because he likes it so much when you fall in love. And he wants that for you. He created family as a good thing. He wants you to be able to pay your bills and know the joy of being able to also give generously. He wants you to have a fruitful life. But when that fruitful life doesn't fit our specific hopes and vision of what that's supposed to look like, or when someone else's sin or our own sin brings some pain into that good dream that God has for us that needs to be dealt with, that hope often flips to discontent. And we say, I won't be, I can't be happy until these things happen. That's why Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, he says this, he says, But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. This last week, Tim Keller tweeted out this quote that I think goes along with this. He said this, he said, If you say, I believe in God, I trusted God, and he didn't come through, then you only trusted God to meet your agenda. But let's take that a bit further. Our pursuit of happiness isn't often working. Why? Because we do get that person or thing that our joy is hung on. And they're not as fun or easy as joy or as joy-producing as we hoped they would be. Now, don't, don't raise your hands, but how many of you found the love of your life and you got married thinking, I'm going to be happy when I get married. And then when you get married, you realize I'm not so happy after all because they're a sinner, I'm a sinner, and there's a little more conflict here than I thought. And this romantic love thing isn't quite as easy as I expected. And, and your spouse is thinking the same thing if you're thinking that, right? So then we modify our focus and we say, when I get a child, then I'll be happy. But when you get a child, they're audacious enough to cry when you're tired. 
And they'll blow their diapers out at the most inconvenient times, sometimes even on that nice new outfit that you got to make yourself feel happy and really good in life, right? And they completely change your schedule and your social life, reorienting absolutely everything. And you find yourself wondering, where did all the joy go? I can't get together with friends as easily who don't have kids now because my kids get into everything at their house and it's just too hard. I can't do small group as easily because my kids interrupt and it's so complicated to organize everything and to to pay for babysitting. And so you start getting tired and you start feeling spiritually dry, even emotionally dry. Or you get that promotion you've always wanted in your job only to learn that it's not always easy carrying the weight of being responsible for other employees and having to make that deal with that pressure to make things work. I think maybe the man who understood this the most is a guy named Solomon in the Bible, the writer of Ecclesiastes. Wisest, richest, richest, most powerful man on earth during his day. Uh, Among his wives and concubines, Solomon had hundreds of the most beautiful women that he could, you know, go to bed with any night he wanted to. And he has all all the money he ever wants and more than he knows what to do with. He has it all by a lot of people's definition. And he writes this. He says, meaningless, meaningless. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Now, I'm that happy. It's a happy way to start a book, right? And we want to put ourselves in his shoes and say, no way. I mean, how many times do you hear someone say, uh, when you hear somebody really rich who's, been, who's unhappy, we hear the phrase, wealth doesn't bring happiness, to which we all want to respond, what? I'd like to try. Right? With a smile. Why do we do that? Because there's still part of us that believes it will make us happy. So we say to Solomon, you have it wrong. Let me rewrite the book. And Solomon says, no, trust me. It's all meaningless. And he sums up the lesson of the book at the end of the book in chapter 12. And he says this. He says, remember your creator in the days of your youth. Before the days of trouble come and the years approach when you say, I find no pleasure in them. Remember, he says, that your definition of a successful pursuit of happiness has to be founded on something bigger than you. Bigger than the people around you. Bigger than any created thing. In fact, it has to be founded and centered in the creator himself who made you. Another reason why we don't find our pursuit of happiness going well is I think it relates to something the guy named Blaise Pascal said in the 17th century. He's a Christian philosopher back then. He said this. He said, all men's miseries derive from not being able to sit in a quiet room alone. And then he goes on and says this. The only thing which consoles us for our miseries is diversion. And yet this is the greatest of all miseries. For it is this which principally hinders us from reflecting upon ourselves, which makes us insensibly ruin ourselves. Diversion amuses us and leads us unconsciously to death. For us to discover a joy that is bigger than our circumstances, we have to come to the place of fully owning that it's okay to be discouraged. It's okay to be in a hard place in life. 
It's okay wondering about your hope and your dream and your joy in life and your future. As long as we don't become fully content with that as a reality of life and it's okay to be in that place, we will seek diversion on the Internet, in our smartphones, in videos, in activity, to avoid any kind of alone time with God that gives us the strength and the peace and the confidence to even find joy in difficult moments. See, joy has to be founded in God a God who permeates every aspect of our life, who directs every aspect of our life, who we learn his ways and we obey his ways in the way we live. Only then will the pursuit of happiness and and, and joy and happiness find any kind of lasting meaning. And the joy and happiness, only then will we find a joy and happiness strong enough and big enough to handle whatever life throws our way. This is, you have to have this, almost this rebellious, strong, beautiful joy. Over the next four weeks, we're going to be looking at Paul's letter to the Philippians. We're going to see Paul's lessons on how we can let God be big enough in our lives so that we can find the object of our pursuit, this joy and happiness. And this letter itself is actually written to a church and a people who saw this power of joy up close and personal in the very founding of their church. It's a big part of the actual story and history of the people that Paul is actually writing to. We see the story in Acts 16. And when we look at that story in Acts 16, we see a joy that we admire, that we all aspire to, but a joy that's different than what we normally pursue, a joy that looks crazy, to the world around us, that rebels against how the world thinks about joy. And it actually finds that joy as something that is lasting, something tangible. Instead, see, we pursue joy so often uh, through these temporary feelings, and it becomes almost like grasping this rope of sand that we grasp it for a moment and it just falls through the cracks of our finger, and then we have to search for another thing to grasp and try to hold on to, but it's just always eluding us just there for a moment. It's a joy that quickly disappears when our kids give us a sleepless night and we still have to get up the next day and perform and deal with a difficult person at, the, at work. Or it's a joy that so quickly disappears and we get a phone call with some bad news. Maybe it's your mom or your dad diagnosed with cancer. Or, or, or it's a joy that even disappears in just the normal weekend things when we're trying to fix something around the house and we get into this project trying to fix it. And every time we take something apart, something more breaks. And this 25-minute project turns into this all-day project, stealing our joy because now we don't have any time to rest, to play, to do something we wanted to with the loved ones in our life. And it robs us of the joy. Acts 16. Paul's uh, encounter with the Philippians starts this way. By him receiving this vivid dream from God to change his plans. And it says this in verse 9. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. That's pretty cool. People wanting to be helped. That's exciting. God is telling him, I want you to go somewhere. I want you to meet a need. And I want you to make a difference. And the fun thing is they want you to come and make this difference in their life. I mean, if I had that kind of word from God to change my plans and go someplace else, I'd be really excited. 
because I get to go where somebody wants to be helped. And so we see the same thing in Paul. Verse 10, it says, Paul immediately changed his course. He was planning on going somewhere else. He went to Philippi, which, which was the leading city of Macedonia. And the next few verses tell us that when he gets there, he goes out on the Sabbath day to where the people would be praying because he's going to the place where the people are most open, where they're already seeking God so he can tell the people who are already seeking God about Jesus. And he finds a gal named, there, named Lydia there who's a wealthy lady in the community, and she comes to faith in Jesus. She becomes a significant leader in the starting of the Philippian church. And a few days into being in Philippi, uh, God does a miraculous thing through Paul. There's this young slave girl. She's uh, owned by a couple different men and she's possessed by a demon. The demon gives her the power to tell people's fortunes. And Paul casts the demon out of her. Wonderful miracle. But the owners become angry. Because now they can no longer make money off of her because she can't tell people's fortunes anymore. So they go to the authorities and they make accusations and they cause an uproar. And Paul and Silas are arrested. They're stripped naked. They're beaten by rods. Then they're whipped severely uh, by a whip. And they're stuck in jail. And even though they're so severely beaten and bleeding and weakened from the abuse, the jailer still insists on sticking them in the most confining, secure cell and fastens their feet in stocks. Dream of God said, Come, help. The people eagerly want your help. They're waiting for you to come. They want you to come. The dream foretold of great success in growing and starting a church. And then this is what happens stripped naked. Humiliated in front of the crowds, beaten, bleeding, now in a cold, damp cell with rats running around, nipping, nipping at them, their feet in stocks, they're, they're shivering, they're cold, they're in great pain, and they don't even have any ibuprofen to take. So let's pick up the story there in verse 25. About midnight, it says, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. What? Beaten? Bloody? cold and pain, having, by anybody's definition, a really, really bad day. And they're singing praise to God, expressing their thanks and their joy to God and worship, singing. I mean, this is what we could call a rebellious joy in Paul and Silas, a joy that gives them strength regardless of the circumstances, not a joy that is contingent upon circumstances. A joy that is powerfully there even when everybody around him says, you should not have any joy at this point in your life. You should be miserable. See, this rebel's guide to joy that Paul writes to us in Philippians tells us the joy God wants us to walk in is a peacefully defiant, genuine, overflowing joy that dictates how we relate to life rather than the circumstances dictating our joy. And the story goes on, verse 26. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We're all here. A joy is so centered in God that Paul can seize the opportunity God has given him 
rather than seize what we would perceive as the momentary joy of being freed and God vindicating us through this miraculous act. Paul stays centered on God and sees a different kind of an opportunity. See, if happiness were all about Paul's needs, he would certainly have fled the jail. Rejoice that God had just justified him and freed him in that way. But happiness for Paul wasn't about his own needs. It wasn't about his own comfort. It wasn't about his own vindication. So we see 29. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and and to all the others in his house. And at that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. And the jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. And he was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. The church of Philippi was founded on a rebellious joy. A joy so strong that it expressed a heart of joy and worship through song while bleeding cold in stocks in prison. A joy that bubbles through not in a way that denies reality and not in a flippant, unrealistic, fake way, but a joy that comes from a confidence in the love and power and purpose and presence of God. A joy that rebels against the circumstances that say you should not be joyful right now. So years later, when Paul's again imprisoned in Rome, he writes the letter, this letter that we're going to be going through back to the church at Philippi, reminding them again of how to walk in this same joy, this letter that is a rebel's guide to joy, a joy that dictates life rather than allows circumstances to dictate it. Paul starts his letter this way. He says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to God's holy people in Christ at Philippi. See, throughout this whole book, we're going to see that joy starts and ends by being in Christ, communing in relationship with him, receiving the power of his Holy Spirit, and learning to tap into that power, not with our own desires, but through the desires of being a servant of God, knowing his will, being obedient to his will each day, and worshiping him. Paul then immediately begins to remind the Philippines and us of his example of joy and how God worked through him in starting the church. And he goes on to say, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So right off the bat, we learn, that, and, and even in a few verses later, we, uh, Paul reaffirms this, that, that Paul's writing this letter to encourage the Philippians in this same strong, circumstance-shaping joy. Because they've gotten to this place in their lives where the circumstances are now bigger than God is, and they're beginning to focus on the circumstances and allow them to dictate their mood and their sense of joy, being discouraged, lacking confidence in God's good plan. Isn't it easy for all of us to lose our joy and to start lacking confidence that God's good promises will come to pass in our lives? 
You know, maybe some of you this week right now are, are facing discouragement in your relationships at work or in marriage or, or in your family. Or, or maybe you're even facing some discouragement in your faith or even discouragement towards the church. And Paul reminds his Philippian friends of the confidence they can have. The confidence in the source of their joy and the hope that can be there no matter what things look like around you in that moment. He says, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will complete, bring it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And that's a word of God over you and I and us together as a church today. He who began a good work in you will carry it to completion until Jesus returns again, setting all things right. Finally, see, if you're discouraged, I want you to just open your heart right now and receive from the Spirit of God that kind of encouragement, that kind of hope right now coming to you. God's strength is there and will be there for you. And you can trust that and receive that right now. I have to say, I wish... I wish I didn't struggle with this, but I, I struggle with believing and having confidence in this same promise all too regularly. I wish I, I wish I was more perfect in that regard, but I'm certainly not. And when I struggle with that kind of discouragement, it's just simply, uh, I just need to take this time to repent. And repent is the word actively turning towards Jesus. I have to actively return and turn my attention and my focus to him to remember this promise and to worship him for this promise. Where have you struggled with confidence that God is going to be there for you? Just take a moment even right now to ask God, Lord, would you just forgive me for getting my eyes off of you? And would you just take a prayerful moment right now to just even turn to him and just begin worshiping him again for this confidence that he wants to give you for that area of discouragement. So, Lord, we just do. We just turn to you. We ask that you would forgive us and that you would, you would come and you would fill us with your hope and your joy. The confidence we can have in looking at you. Lord, did you, did, would you defeat the lies of the enemy that we somehow allow to become so prominent where we become discouraged instead of looking at you and trusting you? Lord, we worship you. We bless you. As the first chapter goes on, you'll discover some of the discouragement that the Philippians are feeling is due to, due to Paul's imprisonment. They're discouraged with that. And they're discouraged with the fact that he's imprisoned. And, and because of that, there's this leadership vacuum and there's this conflict and jealousy emerging among leaders who are trying to take over Paul's place out of jealousy. And, and in the face of all that, Paul says something that is essentially kind of astounding. He says, it doesn't really matter if, you're, if there are people are trying to usurp my leadership from jealousy or impure motives, as long as Christ is preached. And then Paul goes on to say something even more profound. He says, and because of this, I rejoice. Yes, I will continue to rejoice, he says. Because of what? I mean, because of all this imprisonment and the chains and the people trying jealously undermine us. Yet Paul still Rejoices, reminding the Philippian people, I'm sure, of that original story that God moved powerfully in to found their church, 
of them in that prison singing praise and allowing God's presence to come to them and give them strength and allowing God's presence to show up in a miracle that nobody could have predicted. See, Paul models for us in that jail cell our response and difficulty and how we can as a people tap into this joy. And it's going to sound a little oversimplistic, but it really is truly powerful. It is simply exercising our spiritual habit of praising and worshiping God. Whether you sing that, or whether you say it, or whether you write it in a journal, or whether you think it, your joy is found in constantly allowing the greatness of God to be the focal point of your life, of your thoughts, of your prayer, of your words, of your view of the circumstances. You're going to see throughout the rest of this book that Paul regularly returns to this term of, I will rejoice, reflecting both his focus and his willful decision to pursue joy through this act of worship and praise and rejoicing in the opportunities and looking for the opportunities God is going to bring no matter what the circumstances around us look like. See, Paul invites us to that same kind of joy. And that's the joy I want to invite you today to. And we're going to just continue to worship now. And I want you to begin to express that. Begin to allow this song and even your own words through this song to to take the circumstances of discouragement in your life and just continue to focus in on the God who can answer it, the God who is great, the God who wants to fill you with his Holy Spirit and give you joy, even crazy joy, even rebellious joy that the world says you shouldn't have. Not a fake joy, but a joy that comes from him. So would you stand and join in worship? Lord, we thank you that you are indeed with us. So, Father, I pray that even now as we begin to close this service, that you would continue to come to each and every one here, especially those who have been struggling with discouragement, Lord, that your spirit would just wash over them right now. There would be a sense of your presence and your peace and a joy and a strength that would well up in them, a hope, Lord. Lord, as we also turn, as we depart to, to giving to what you're doing here, Lord, we're grateful. We're so grateful for the way you provide for us in abundance. And Lord, we ask that you'd continue to, to provide more and more for us, that you'd provide more and more wisdom as well for us in handling our money, that we could be more content and we could continue to become people of greater and greater generosity and experience the joy of your spirit working through us in that way as we care for this community and care for each other. Would you supply everything we need in abundance? We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you are loving Quest podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information about Quest, who we are and what we do, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at gotoquest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org.